hello, hello. You are listening to From 78, a podcast about people in time, about ghosts and specters and things that haunt us. I am your host, From 78. And on the show today, I have uh, Jason, who is one of the co-hosts of the amazing podcast, The Regrettable Century. Jason was kind enough to give me some of his time on a Saturday, and uh, we talked for, for quite a while. It was a really interesting conversation for me. I hope it was an interesting conversation for him as well, and I hope it will be an interesting conversation for all of you to listen to. Now, one of the things that that made this such an interesting conversation for me was that as I was talking with Jason, I found that he has a very different perspective on some things than I do. And uh, one of the things that we have a radically different perspective on, I think, is being afraid of dying. And that's one of the things that comes up in this podcast. I really enjoyed listening to Jason's take on why he is not that afraid of dying. It was really interesting for me to hear that because I'm somebody who is. I'm somebody who's terrified of dying. That's one of those specters which really haunts me in a pretty significant way. You'll hear more about that as you listen to this episode. And as I listened to what Jason said uh, about his, I guess, lack of fear of that inevitability, I found myself thinking, huh, you know, I'm still scared of dying, but what Jason said makes a lot of sense. And it gave me something to think about. And that was good. I'm glad that I got that. Anyways, uh, you're going to hear about other things besides my fear of dying and Jason's lack of fear of dying on this interview. I haven't edited it very much. You're getting it pretty close to the, the raw format that it was recorded in. So there will not be any kind of like a unedited version that's behind a, a Patreon paywall or anything like that. You're basically getting a very, very, very lightly edited mixed version here. And uh, that's that. I'm going to stop talking now and I'm going to cue up some transition music. And then you're going to listen to the From 78 interview with Jason from The Regrettable Century. Uh, so I was born in 1984, which is also uh, the best Van Halen album. So very blessed. Um, <laughs> that makes me uh, 35. I turned 36 this year. Um, so I'm a, right in the middle of, I guess, the millennial generation. Or maybe I'm on the tail end of it. I never really quite know how to, you know, the the, the parameters, they're always a little bit shifting. But I guess I am... Um, just on the surface, I am a, very much a, a part of and a product of the of the millennial generation, which means like I was a, you know, I was a small child when the Soviet Union fell. I was uh, raised in a re- very religious household during the the super popularity of people like Dr. James Dobson and Pat Robertson. Uh, I got the internet. As a teenager, um, 9-11 was not my first like political moment, you know, it was probably a bit earlier back. It might have been more, um, 
I don't know. I was like aware of the global justice movement, the Seattle stuff. Uh, I was even vaguely aware of Rodney King. You know, of course, I was a little bit as a little kid. So I, I've always sort of felt like uh, I, the product of a really bizarre, and I don't, I don't know if it's maybe a little silly to say unique kind of cultural moment. Um, but when I talk to people like much younger than me or much older than me, our experiences are. Of, of even the same phenomena are so different. I feel like probably there are tons and tons of ghosts. Um, I guess if I dig really deep, I should say that the religious upbringing is probably a big part. It's something that has perpetually influenced the way that I, uh, the way that I live, even though I'm absolutely not a part of the community I was raised in. Um, that makes sense. I think it's, yeah. it's uh, the religious thing. So, I mean, I, I grew up in a, a very, very Catholic family. Um, when I was a kid, I remember, I think I might have been in like third grade. It sounds right. Um, uh, the, the, I went to a Catholic school. So there was a church in that, that like the school was attached to. And they sent home a thing to all the parents of only, only the male students, right? So that, that was me. And it was like, hey, we want people to be altar boys. And I remember my my parents showing it to me and saying, like, hey, do you want to do this? And they, they presented it like it was a choice. And I said, no, I don't want to do it because I, <laughs> I, I, I thought it sounded like work. And who wants to do that, right? Um, and then I, they, they promptly told me, well, like, okay, you're, you're doing it anyways. And uh, I, I think I attempted some minimal version of a third grade boy protest that was extremely ineffective. And they told me I, I had to do it. And so I started to do it. Then I realized after I started that it was actually a good deal because it got me out of class actually. Mm. Um, and so it, it, that was, that it was, it was more fun to go to the church and light matches, you know, and, and make uh, candles lit than it was to sit and learn about whatever you were supposed to be learning about at that time. Um, I think we got out of religion class. So it was, you know, studying stories from the Bible or something. So yeah, I mean that, that was better, but, uh, you know, that was a huge part of my background and I, I, I went through to Catholic schools all the way through high school and, um, you know, it, it, I think there was a lot of stuff that was kind of thrown at me in, in that, that process, right? And a lot of it, I think, made a lot of sense and continues to make a lot of sense even today. But what doesn't make sense to me today is the, uh, the sort of like organizational structure of, of the church itself and sort of like the, the, the power system that, that exists there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I continue to converse with, you know, Catholics and people of faith from, from a lot of different, you know, Christian uh, backgrounds. And... I find myself a lot of times feeling like um, <laughs> it's 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 really weird. Like I'll talk to them about this stuff, and and sometimes I'm like, "Do you what what happened differently for me that didn't happen for you, or what happened for you that didn't happen for me?" Um, because I, I I'm like I I don't think you understand what you're saying a lot of times because you're, you're there's this like rigorous identification with a church and not necessarily a rigorous identification with um say like the figure of Christ and sort of like what that figure. Right seems to symbolize at least to me ultimately. So that was, that's, that's something that, that haunts me too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for me, it's, it's, that's a very similar feeling. Like there's a, there's a sort of a ethical framework for approaching the world um, and other people, you know, whether it's um, the, the concept of community and like brotherhood on a global scale, or if it's like do unto others as you would have them do unto you, um, whipping the money changers in the temple. There's a bunch of stuff that stuck with me. The stuff that didn't stick with me was, you know, like you said, the rules, uh, the the institutional framework for the the life lessons and the worldview. Um, and I guess a way to 
to put a little bit more uh, content on this, the way that that ghost has sort of stayed with me is it has informed what I have sought in life pretty much ever since. So that my, uh, my political uh, affiliation is not the right word. Identity is such a weird term to use now. Um, my politics <laughs> are essentially like a pro- applied Christianity. That's my, that's my socialism is I first learned it uh, from Jesus Christ. And then maybe I've moved away from what I was originally taught that that was all about, right? But the, the idea of salvation and the, the building the city on the hill um, as a beacon to the world, it's a, that's something that has never for even a moment gone away. And I don't believe it ever will at this point. Um, I don't know if, uh, if in your conception of a ghost, if it's something that haunts you in a way that's like, it's, it's just there, whether you want it to be or not, or if it's something that you can consciously embrace. In this case, I think it probably is there, whether I want it to be or not. So I have chosen to embrace it. I don't mm-hmm. know if that transforms the nature of a ghost or not. Um, so that's a question for you. Yeah. So the 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 when I started doing the podcast, um, it, I had this idea one night. So I couldn't sleep, and I got up. Um, it was it was the small hours in the morning, right? Hour of the wolf or whatever. And um, I'm awake, and I go down to from upstairs in my house to downstairs where there's a bookshelf. I look in the bookshelf. I'm like, I'll find something that will be nice to read at like you know three twelve in the morning or something. And I decide I'm going to read The Specters of Marx by Jacques Derrida because that's the kind of dude I am. And uh, <laughs> that's what I read to comfort myself at 3.12 in the morning uh, or whatever. Some, pe- some people watch television. Some people smoke weed. Some people read Derrida. There you go. Yeah, and I'm, I'm the, the last kind of person. So I'm reading this thing, and uh, it's great. You know, I, I, I love it. It's, it's a really cool book. And I mean, I've tried to read other things by Derrida, like of grammatology and stuff, and I've been completely and totally dumbfounded. I don't understand a bit. And um, I picked up The Specters of Marx. This is one of those books that I picked up, I think, at like a used bookstore because it was there. And I, I'm like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll grab that. And uh, then it sat on my shelf for years. <laughs> and then, you know, one night, there, oh, why not? So I pick it up and I start to read the thing. And, um, uh, there's this concept of ghosts in there. He talks about, you know, the opening part of the communist manifesto. There's a, a specter haunting Europe, uh, the specter of communism. Yeah. And then Derrida kind of goes on this really extended riff, which I'll summarize as, um, there's certain things from the past, which are ghosts, right? That's what makes them ghosts is that they're from the past and that, uh, they're not, they're things that don't have a, a physical material presence in the present. So the fall of the Berlin Wall, that's something that happened. It's not happening now. We could arguably say that fits into this definition of ghosts. The explosion of the Challenger, 9-11, um, the assassination of Martin Luther King. We could go on, right? These are things that happened. And even though they're not happening today, the ripples of those events continue to kind of like have an impact on the world. It's weird. It's this thing that isn't here, but is kind of here in this like haunty way. Um, right sort of pushing in a ghostly way on, on what's going on. Specters were, uh, according to Derrida, things from the future. So um, climate catastrophe. Um, I remember growing up in the 80s, nuclear war was like the, a specter. It hadn't happened yet, but everybody was uh, kind of like thinking it would happen and it would be terrible. And so that was like the specter that was haunting. It's, it hasn't happened yet, but people think it will. And so that, that thing, which isn't materially present, sort of haunts in a, in a different way. And so that's where, where that came from, for whatever that's worth. Okay. Yeah, actually, so right on, you know, thinking a little bit deeper about this, then 
I feel like um, we, earlier when I was saying, you know, the experience of the, of the millennial generation is this really, I seems to me a, a bizarrely unique one because there's plenty that you and I have in common because we grew up in the same country and the same culture and so on and not so far apart. You know, you're not, you're not 70 and I'm not 17. But I, I grew up with more, I think, more ghosts than specters in the sense that like, and just like in the way that like the youngest generation today, um, like I think that'll probably be a really similar experience. I didn't grow up with the threat of nuclear war or the threat of communism, or the threat of anything, really. Like the war on terror maybe is like a, a, like a kind of a thing, but it, be, it sort of happened and it became a thing that was happening. It wasn't just like a fear that what if one day there's terrorism? It became mm-hmm. actualized in the exact moment that we began to fear it. Um, and then we kind of got over it. So it's not much of a, of a specter that's still haunting us. The, nobody talks about terrorism anymore. It's just like this pandemic, it started... And now we're worried about it. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like I, I didn't grow up with a fear of pandemics or, a, or just that being in the air. But I absolutely grew up with the ghosts of um, various movements in pop culture that are like over, you know, so, but they still influence whatever happens next, whether it's movie making or music making or, or something. Um, then the, ni- the late 90s and early 2000s, especially were like times of brief revivals of past fashions and past the sort of aesthetic uh, and artistic things because it was, yeah, I think we were entering into a period where the future seems to have gone away as a concept, but the past is very attractive, mm-hmm. constantly trying to reinvent it. So I think that I grew up with a lot of, uh, a lot of ghosts in the broad sense of the sort of cultural milieu that I was, that I was raised in, that everybody, whether you lived in Los Angeles or New Haven or uh, you know, mobile, that if you're of a certain generation, it seems to me that there are far fewer specters, and f- but just as many ghosts as there always are, because all human beings live after events. Um, but then on a personal level, if I'm really thinking about ghosts, I suppose I'm not, I'm, I suppose I'm pretty normal in the sense that I have plenty of them, right? Like, whether it's a lost love or you know, should I have done this as opposed to that? Like, should I have kicked out one member of my band and replaced them and signed a record contract instead of going to college? That's a, that's a thing that exists in my mind as like a, one of the crossroads where I took one path as opposed to the other. And I'll always wonder what might my life have been like had I gone down the other path, Mm -hmm. you know, and on the, on, the, on the question of romance, that's not something I want to get into, but we all have had that experience where had I made this decision as opposed to that decision, you know, so it haunts you. So to re, you revisit decisions you've made or didn't make where you just sort of let events dictate things for you out of fear or some other basis of paralysis where you just can't make a decision. And yet it happens and then you're forced to deal with the consequences of your, either your action or your inaction. Um. And I suppose I have mostly tried to live as though I didn't really believe those things affected me. Uh, and I can get into that if, if it's useful. Sure. But, uh, well, okay. So like, let me, yeah, let me just explain that, I guess. Um, so I've lived in a lot of places and I've worked a lot of kinds of jobs and in a lot of ways I've just drifted, but I'm very social. So I've maintained connections with people everywhere I go. 
And I've always tried to live in sort of defiance of the idea of dead time or of, or of routine or like fate, even like I'm going to decide in whatever limited means are available to me, you know, whatever limited circumstances I have, I'm going to act as though I really believe I'm free to make my own decisions. Um, and consequences be damned, right? So for most of my life, I've felt like very few regrets, even maybe in places where I should have. Uh, <laughs> and this year, uh, really, it was like end of 2019, beginning of 2020. It's the first time in my life I decided I'm going to sink roots. I'm going to commit to a course of action. I'm going to dedicate my mental energy to where I am and who I'm around and these relationships and, and so on. And so now that I have like, you know, tried to plant roots, I'm now finding myself looking back over the course of my life up to this point and discovering far more ghosts than I realized I had. So it's almost like, you know, when you play, um, when you, when you play the ghost levels in a Mario game, you know, like if you stand still, they catch up to you. So you're constantly running away. And I feel like that's what my life has been. And now I'm standing still and all of a sudden all these ghosts are coming up. It's like, oh, shit, I have regrets. There are things that I haven't done right. There are courses of action that I wonder about. And there are influences that are beyond my control that I'm only now recognizing as having always been there. That just because I'm now standing still, I'm able to actually uh, reckon with. So it's not all bad. It's not all good. It's just that there are there's a confluence of factors from my past life and from history leading up to before I was born and everything else that I'm now having to think about. Um, it's a very uncomfortable place to be, but I, I suppose I want to believe that on the other end of it, it's uh, it's illuminating, right? It maybe makes it easier to contend with the specters once you've contended with the ghosts. Yeah, maybe that, 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 that makes sense. It's uh, as you're saying that it, it reminds me of something I, I heard, uh, I believe it was Parker Palmer who's like this, you know, Quaker guy who said this uh, thing where he, he is uh, this famous writer guy. People probably would spend a lot of money to listen to him talk. He, he's he's this, one of those sorts of folks. And he, um, he had a, a period of his life where he, I mean, he, he was, he had kind of like made it in his version of making it right. Like he had this vision in his head of what a good life looked like. A good life is a life that looks like this. When somebody does these things, you know, it's like uh, meet somebody, fall in love, start a family, raise your kids in a way that mostly doesn't mess them up too bad, so on and so forth, right? It wasn't even like a crazy life. It was just like a, his idea of what a, a good life would be. And, um, you know, he, he wrote books and people read them and they were moved by them. And then he falls into this like immense depression after having arrived at this place that he thought he was trying to arrive at. And um, he described the same thing that you did, that he, for he, all of this stuff that he was doing, kind of in, in pursuit of a, a good life, was a way of kind of like continuing to, to keep moving and staying ahead of this thing that was just kind of like slowly walking behind him, you know? Um, and, and it's yeah. like, so he would sprint ahead of it for a while, be like feverishly busy doing all this stuff, and this thing would just kind of like slowly trudge. And um, he's like, you know, eventually this thing it kind of catches up with you. It grabs you. And it's like, you know, you, you have something that you haven't dealt with. You have something that you are afraid of and you've been running from it and it, it finally caught up, right? You got tired and now here it is. And, um, 
uh, he, he, he has this thing that he's doing now where he's, he's talking, I think more frequently about this, about this idea of instead of kind of like, uh, running or drifting or moving, whatever you want to call it, sort of trying to do what I think you're describing, sort of situate yourself somewhere and kind of like just, uh, you know, wait for the ghosts to come and, and they will, they do. And it's hard, but, but then it's, how do you, I guess, listen to and respond to those ghosts in a way that, um, is, is okay. You know, and, and I don't think he has the answers to that. I don't have the answers to that, but it seems like that's sort of what you're, you're going through. Absolutely. I think that that's a really, that's a, that's a really good way to, to describe it. I mean, another, another sort of metaphorical image that's maybe closer to where I'm thinking of things now is less to do with Mario because, (laughs) you know, in the game, you just leave the ghost house and you go to the next level at some point, like they're gone forever. You don't actually have to, you know, deal with them. So it's more like digging in and preparing, you know, the battlements for an enemy that you're no longer retreating from. Um, but like fully conscious of the fact that you might not actually win the battle. It's, so, it's I think, it's, it's kind of scary, right? Like I've always had a melancholic streak. I don't know why that is. Um, I'd like to figure it out one day. Um, People love being sad. Yeah. Um, and it has never been like depression, well, that's not true. I shouldn't say it. it's never been depression. It has become depression at certain points. Um, and usually my the way I've dealt with like immense loss and disappointment and the general confusion that comes from life coming at you in a way that you hadn't anticipated or hoped that it wouldn't is to go, right? To like uproot and go and do something else. So it's like in the series of skirmishes I have fought <laughs> against the tide of life, um, I have uh, opted to retreat rather than to uh, fully face the battle and deal with whether or not there's going to be a victory or a loss. Um, and I suppose that like deciding like, okay, I live in Los Angeles. I work in television. I have this group of friends and comrades, whatever, like, and this is my life now. Here's where I am. The only thing left to do is to dig in and hope I win the battle. That sounds more dramatic than it's meant to though, because that sounds like I feel like I'm doomed. Um, and I don't think I am. I don't think I really know. Because I never really had to. You know, I've never had to decide what I actually think about my life because I've just thought, well, I'm going to go try something else. My, my approach to everything has always been, I'll just keep trying until I figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but not in the way of just keep going, but like trying, you know, things that are polar opposites from each other. I'll try this for a while. I'll try that. I'll go here. I'll go there. I'll, I'll be in this sort of relationship. I'll be in that sort of relationship. Um, so yeah, now that I've stopped moving, it's a, it's very disorienting actually. Um, but there's a, there's an element of kind of defiance about it too. It's like, um, that's why I think I like the battlefield metal, metal, uh, that's why I think I like the battlefield metaphor. It's cause there's a, there's a, there's a fight left in it. It's not just, you know, I'm not just trying to like get through something. It's like I'm trying to achieve something. But what it, what that actually is, I don't know. I guess you could call it happiness, fulfillment. But that sounds naive, <laughs> you know. Do we ever get those things? I think we I think I have found little versions of them as I've moved around and run around and tried everything. But the big the big happiness, the big fulfillment, that seems very elusive. For sure. 
I, I think of it instead now, and this is probably not very helpful, but um, we're to say like there's there's a dichotomy where you have happiness on one side of a line and you have unhappiness on the other side. Or mm-hmm. Maybe I'll say misery. That, that might work better. So you have happiness on this side and you have misery on this side. What I, I think is if we draw a line down here, uh, we can create this new category, which is non-misery, um, which contains mm. happiness, actually, right? Happiness is just non-misery. Um, uh, in, in the way that I, I kind of like conceive of it, I think that that's that's uh, a way to do it. There's something else though that you said that it, it means something to me, and um, there's sort of two parts to this. So one, when you were talking about uh, the the kind of life that you you're, you're trying to to get to, you know, with good friendships and 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 to be happy to arrive somewhere, uh, and you said like maybe I'll uh, you, I think you said something like do what happens then, right? Uh, it made me yeah. I mean, I definitely implied that whatever I said, that was definitely there. Yeah. So, so Derrida in that, that Spectres of Marx book, one of the things that he talks about is the justice to come. And he he's, has this idea that, that again, I'm going to brutally summarize here, and he's like, you know, we can always try to make the world a, a more just world, and we might make progress. We might actually make it more just. But no matter how much more just we make it, there will continue to be injustice. There will continue mm-hmm. to be like, you know, um, uh, justice gone wrong and misused and so on and so forth, co-opted, perverted. And that's just going to be the way that it is. And so we're going to, to fail. We, we will always fail, no matter what, we will fail to create justice with a capital J. Um, and that is, according to Derrida, the very reason why we should continue to try to make it is the fact that we fail. Because if we, if we were guaranteed success and we, we did it, I mean, that, that would mean something. But think about what it means to to do something, even though because you think it would be right, because you think it would be good, you don't think that you're going to be able to do it because you're one person working in this gigantic thing called the world. And what can you really do? Well, you can try and fail. And that there's mm-hmm. Derrida, I think, kind of, and this is melancholic to me, right? He he sees beauty in this. He sees something worthwhile and interesting and and worthy in that kind of failure. And so that was the first part. The second part. When you said that that maybe I'm doomed, uh, but maybe not, uh, th- this is one of the things. I mean, that for me, this is a huge specter um, uh, that 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 haunts me all the time, and it's my own death. Like, I am terrified, deeply terrified of dying. When I say deeply terrified, I probably can't can't really communicate this very well. But there are literally uh, many instances where I lie awake at night trying to go to sleep, and I'm unable to go to sleep because I start thinking 
about the heat death of the universe. And it freaks me out so much that like I, I get, I start, my body starts doing the anxiety thing. Heart rate increases. Um, wow. Really? Yeah. It's, it's really bad. And, um, which is, um, in, in people tell me that's crazy. And to me, it's crazy that other people don't have this. Um, you know, it's like, how, how can you not, um, you know, but I recognize that I'm probably in the minority of people when I, when I have this thing. And, uh, I, I do feel like in a lot of ways I am doomed because, um, kind of hearkening back to one of our, my earlier comments, uh, I do think that, that Christ provided a wonderful example for how one might live, but I don't believe that there's an afterlife. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, or maybe there is and I'm wrong. That'd be cool. But I don't think there is. So I think that this life is all I got. And when it's over, it's over. And, you know, every day that comes to an end, I know, and I think about this consciously, I have taken one more day off of the stack of tomorrow's and I put it on my stack of yesterday's. And what's mm-hmm. happening is over time, my stack of tomorrow's is decreasing and my stack of yesterday's is increasing. And eventually there's going to be more uh, yesterday's than there are tomorrow's, right? I'm, 42. I don't know if I've hit the midway point or not. I, I did, you know, maybe, maybe I have, maybe I haven't. And I have, I have a kid right. now. And, um, you know, I had, I had my, my child when I was 40 years old. So I, I, a lot of people have kids younger than that. I, not me. And so I, I think about time and I think about how much, how many good years do I have? You know, how many years do I have where my body is going to be healthy, responsive, able to do all the things I want to do? And I don't know. Uh, and I know I don't have as much as I want, right? And so in that sense, I am doomed to death inevitably. Uh, and I'm all, I might also be doomed to like infirmness and sickness and a bunch of other things as well. And so in the face of that, um, the, the question is, even though that's an unavoidable thing, and this is kind of like the Derrida thing again, right? Even though like death is for certain, um, your body will die. How, do you, how does your body live a life which is worth living? It's a hmm. big question for me, right? And I think about it a lot. Um, and again, I'm, I'm somewhat baffled that other people don't seem to be pondering this to the, to some level, right? Like ultimately. So that's my, uh, diatribe back at you. Well, it's funny. I've had this conversation with, uh, a, a handful of very dear friends and I feel like I, I, first of all, I feel very lucky to be in my mid thirties and have made new friends who are like dear friends, not just like a buddy from work that you like go to the bar with once every couple of weeks after work, but like people who um, I get together with on a regular basis. And I talk to intimately about all sorts of every facet of life from the mundane to the, the most profound questions. And these are people I love that they may as well have been childhood best friends, but I've only known them for a few years. So I'm very lucky about that. So I feel like I've been able to have really good conversations about some really important things. And one of them is this question of, you know, your yesterdays and tomorrows. And the first thing I think is that the heat death of the universe might not be the the precise way in which that concern about your one's own mortality uh, is, is manifest, but it definitely exists. Right. And it exists for most people. What I've always found the strange is that I, it, it doesn't exist for me and it really doesn't. And I used to think like when confronted with my own mortality, Will I really feel the way I do right now? Will I really actually not be concerned with the fact that one day I'll die and I'll be gone forever and that's it? Um, and then I had a, what you could call a really bad trip. Um, <laughs> and I thought I was dying. And intellectually, I knew like nobody dies from eating mushrooms, right? 
but it didn't matter because at a certain point I was falling asleep and uh, I was convinced that that was my death because however, however obviously altered my own consciousness was in a way that that's what drugs are for, right? Didn't matter. In that moment, I was dying. I knew it and I felt it. I was dying. I was drifting off to sleep, but still in a very altered way. And so my breathing was slowing down. My brain was getting foggy. The room was getting dark. Um, and I was at peace with it. I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to die. And other people will have to deal with it, but I won't. And it's okay. So I might have plenty of problems, right? But one of them is not the fear of death, apparently. The problem is, is that, you know, when you mix something like that with like a lifelong melancholy or the tendency toward deep depression, whenever there's like profound uh, disappointment, uh, oftentimes it's that need to continue to exist that gets people out of the roughest part of their lives. So I have now come to the realization that I have to probably fight a little bit harder to make sure that I'm only 35 years old. I definitely have a lot more tomorrows if I want them. So I have to consciously want them. I have to like put something into the present that makes a future. Because otherwise, I I guess the reason why I can talk about this so uh, casually is because it's not suicidal, Mm -hmm. but it is a complete acceptance of the inevitable end might that I guess I guess what I mean is that that could mean an embracing of a premature end, and you you know I think you're supposed to not want that. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're supposed to want to keep going, right? Maybe I mean I, I actually don't know that that's the thing. Like um, I mean when you're when you're 35 and and healthy, yeah, probably. Um, you know, I, I, one of the things I, I teach people to be therapists and, and this is something that I'll say in class sometimes. And I usually get some weird looks when I say it because the, the, um, the question of what to do if a patient displays what, what's called suicidal ideation, what do you do? Um, and one of my, my, I'm like, I don't think there's a, a, a foolproof way to deal with that or a, a way that works in every single instance, mind you. But generally, uh, when I, when students bring this up, I, I, I say something along the lines of, well, like you try to figure out why it is that somebody might be interested in killing themselves, why they might be interested in dying more than they are in living. Right. And then the students are like, and then, then you, you, what do you do? Do you hospitalize and try to stop them? And I'm like, I don't know, actually, because it, it's, it's an ethical question at this point, right? Are there good reasons that people might want to die? Are there reasons that we could go, okay, if that was me, I would want to die, you know? And, and usually the students who I talk to, they, they will accept something like intense, you know, um, unending physical pain, Sure. Is, is a yeah. good reason that, that a person might not want to be a living body anymore. Um, they're, they're less likely to accept um, kind of like unending psychological pain um, for, for that reason uh, and, and all that. And it, it's weird. Like uh, <laughs> there's, there's a time I remember I was talking to, this is a teenage kid that I, 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 I knew um, uh, not, not in any kind of like clinical way. This is, you know, a friend has a, a kid who's a teenager we were talking about this and, um, uh, you know, she was, she was saying that, 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 um, there was a lot of time for it where she thought about, about dying, where she thought about killing herself. And I, I said something to her along the lines of, you know, there's probably really good reasons that people might uh, desire to kill themselves, but at, at 14, you probably don't have them, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, you, 
You can't know. I mean, look, some 14-year-olds can know. Absolutely. She was, there there I, are exceptionally bad circumstances that some people grow up in. Yeah, this this was not that kind of a fourteen year old. This is a fourteen year old living in like you know suburban Chicago land, going uh, you know the the conditions were ostensibly I would say quite good, Um, right? And like most fourteen year olds, she had you know her heart broken and the world let her down, and that was hard. Um, But it wasn't in in my mind, anyways. It's not a good reason to kill yourself, right? And I don't think she sure. probably even wanted to anyways. I think she probably wanted to communicate to me and to other people that she was actually very sad. And that was the way that she chose to do that. Um, you know, so uh, that what people say and what they mean are not always the same thing uh, and, and all that. But that, that came up. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I, I think that sometimes uh, an acceptance of the end like, might be a really emotionally and physically healthy choice to make. Um, I think... You know, a lot of times it probably isn't, and people make it anyways. But let's not let's not take anything off the table, basically. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, so I agree. Uh, I sort of didn't. I didn't finish drawing a line. I sort of lost track of my own thought. But um, the reason why I started that way of talking about this group of friends is that um, when I have talked about the concept of death. And mortality. It's not just that, like uh, in that conversation or in those conversations, that I have discovered that uni- unique among this group of people, I'm not just not worried about it. Whereas they are like I'll cling to life to my very last breath, and every available bit of medical science that keeps me alive, like I want to see it all because the the nothingness that comes next, that's terrifying. Like right? like the way you described, but also because those conversations almost invariably, at some point, if you go deep enough, they do come up uh, against the question of suicide. And I have had uh, what for some people is an uncomfortably blasé attitude about it, which is very like, it's like, it's a choice that people make, you know, every day even to continue to exist. And for me, that's, that's liberating, you know, in the, in the existentialist sense of like, well, you, you're not forced to exist. You decide to, and there's something beautiful about the fact that you could always decide not to. Right, and the fact that you continue to decide to means that you think that there's some reason to continue to do so, even if it's obscured to you. Like in the case of uh, get laid off from your job, and you know your partner leaves you, and everything's going wrong, and none of the things that you were seeking in life have turned out to um, to go the way that you wanted, and then you continue to decide to pursue existence it means that there's something even just at the, way in the back of your mind that says you think that those tomorrows are, are valuable, maybe even more valuable than the yesterdays, which is a very, like on a, on a conscious level, that's very hard, I think, for people because we're all very nostalgic about the past. I and mean, most people are. I, I certainly am. But in my darkest moments, I always return to the fact that I'm nostalgic about every single period of my life. You know, whether it's early childhood or it's early teenage years or it was my 20s or my 30s or last year. Mm-hmm. And that means I've lived a pretty decent life. If I'm nostalgic about all of the time before, that means that the time that's about to happen might be something I'm nostalgic about one day. For sure. And that's a reason to make the conscious decision to continue to exist. It's not just instinct. And maybe for most people, we think it's just instinct, but I think a deep investigation is you know, probably very useful for those of us who, uh, who do tend toward the melancholy, like to really fully take control of your own life means to, to be aware of how your own mind and your own heart work. 
So I have found a lot of uh, like life sustaining and, and driving force in an acceptance of death and an acceptance of how easily I could decide to not live. So every morning I wake up and go, I'm going to make a cup of coffee rather than kill myself, right? Like to, to fully abuse the, uh, and distort the, the Camus quote. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hey, thus far for 35 years, well, I guess I didn't drink coffee in my childhood, but you know, you get it, right? Yeah. Thus far, I have decided to make a cup of coffee. And not just because I need one to get up in the morning to like w- wake up. It's because I fucking love it. It tastes good. I want some because I enjoy it. And that enjoyment is like, that represents to me whatever it is I'm seeking every day, every year. Um, yeah, I don't really know where I'm going with this. I think it's just like... I like it though. It's groovy. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it, it, there's a, I mean, in psychoanalysis, there's this, this like, concept of the death drive. And um, it, it's complicated. And I'm going to brutally simplify that now because that's, I guess, what I'm doing today. Um, there's this idea that uh, life, Freud said, you know, we have these things, tension, excitation that occurs throughout our life, right? Like we're, you're alive and that means you have things that you need to do to keep yourself alive. And um, as we get older, uh, they become more complicated um, mm-hmm. than when we're, when we're kids. And, you know, it's just like there's all this stuff you got to do. And it's like, oh, my gosh, got to do this. I got to do this. It starts to make you feel anxious. It starts to make you feel stress, all that stuff. So he postulated eventually that there was this thing called the death drive. And the death drive was a desire um, to return to a state when there was no tension. Uh, essentially, a desire to not desire. A desire to not want anything because when you want something, you don't have it. Not having it sucks. So it's like, let's just not want anything by not being at all, right? That's, that's the death drive. Go back to sure. the time before you were born. Um, and that, that becomes repressed, but since it's repressed, it's not destroyed and it continues to like act out in different ways in our lives. And then later on, Lacan, you know, comes along and kind of like does some really cool stuff with, with that concept. And he talks about how, um, people usually enter therapy, psychoanalysis or whatever, because they have a crisis of desire. They're like, I want this thing and I can't have it. And they're saying it like, it's a terrible thing. And Lacan was like, isn't that great? (laughs) You know, isn't it so great? (laughs) Because that means that you're alive, that you, you can want. And, and that's what life is. Life is wanting and not having, right? That's, that's what is evidence of your living as opposed to anything else, right? It, it gives you a thing. You want coffee in the morning, right? That's great. Then you can get coffee and then you can want whatever you want next. Another cup of coffee to go for a run. I don't know. Um, yeah. Anything it, you, you want, though, and that that's, that's so wonderful, uh, and so I think that a lot of times one of the ways that I, I sometimes think of the project of Lacanian psychoanalysis is to reorient people's perception of their own desires uh, so that they don't see they're not having the things, all of the things that they want as a total crisis. Now, of course, you need you can't have none of the things you want. That would be an absolute crisis. And that's where, you know, like people who are living in abject poverty. I'm not I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about other things here. Of course. Yeah. You know, but uh, I, I think that that's really really wild uh, and i like that i like that that um living means desiring and desiring means not having therefore living means not having it's not so bad yeah it's like uh we are born into suffering but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad it can mean it's bad right
So I had wondered, you know, because I've listened to, uh, uh, you know, the episodes prior to today, and I have wondered how deeply personal am I going to allow this conversation to get? Because there are things that you don't want to broadcast to uncount- uncountable, unknowable masses of strangers, right? Um, but on the other hand, this is like, this is, you know, nothing human is alien to me, right? And these are conversations that other people are having in their lives everywhere else, and maybe it's useful. So it's funny, this, it's, your approach is very disarming. I went in thinking, I have a lot of political things to say, and I haven't t- said any of them, right? So uh, this is a very useful exercise. Uh, I will say um, on the subject of being very personal, like this year especially has been like a, it's been the most disappointing year um, of my whole life probably. And it has been very tough at times. Um, so I have, you know, the, that whole thing I was just recounting about like, you know, continually finding things that keep you going forward. It's very important. Um, and I think probably for everybody right now in the, in the age of the pandemic and this terrible uncertainty about, you know, there's, whether you know it or not, there's a recession underway and it's going to get much worse and whatever. Um, but like, there's also so much beauty in the world and so much beauty in existing that it's a, yeah, there are lots of reasons to continue to exist. I guess that's the, that's the message for me and for anybody else who maybe isn't sure of it. It makes a lot of sense to me. I wanted to, uh, maybe do a bit of a pivot here though, too. And may try to do a, a, I don't know if this will get into the political beliefs or not, but because it, it's somewhat personal, but it's also, I think, kind of political. So you were talking, you described yourself as melancholic, right? You have, you, that, that's the way that, that you've lived. And you also talked a lot about nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately, um, uh, because of, of conversations that I, I've had with, with, um, people, well, let me, let me back up here and kind of reset here. So, I have um, people who I, I care about. They're, they're members of my family that live in areas like Southern Illinois and like Northern Wisconsin, because I'm, I'm in the Midwest. And they have very different opinions than I do. They have, especially when it comes to politics, that we're not on the same page. And, um, you know, when I was a teenager, I feel like I, I spent a lot of time being really angry and bitter and resentful and just you know, like not wanting to be around these people. And then, you know, as, as a 42 year old adult, my opinions have changed. And, um, what I'll do is I'll talk to people who you know, are literally working on farms, you know, in, in Southern Illinois or central Illinois who did things like vote for Trump. And I want to, I'll ask them like, why'd you do that? Like, and I mean that like, not in a, like, so I can tell you that you're wrong kind of a way, but in a, like, I really want to understand what you're thinking just to right. understand it. You know, I don't, I don't want to debate. I don't want to, I don't want to engage in, and I mean, sometimes I do want to do that, but I, I re- restrain it. I just, I really, I guess I want to try to understand better. So I've been talking to these folks, and one of the common trends that I hear is a nostalgia. And it's a nostalgia to, the, the, it's this, uh, you know, air quotes, make America great again. And, and what that means for people is, is interesting to, to hear them describe that, um, because they're describing a nostalgia for a time that is actually, I think, for them a ghost, because they didn't live through that time, largely, right? right? But they, they know it exists, I guess, from movies and, and things. Um. And what I think they're doing is their nostalgia is not melancholic. I think their nostalgia is attempting to kind of like dig down into the past to kind of like grab what this, this ghost and sort of like throw it into like um, a Frankenstein monster and reanimate it and sick it on the world. 
that that seems to be what what they're they're trying to do and i know that that description probably doesn't make them sound very nice and and all that but that that's how it sounds to me right because with, sure. they they their thing is like it was better than let's go back to that and let's make everybody else go back to that too versus what i think of as like a melancholic kind of nostalgia which is what i think you're describing that kind of nostalgia is looking at some things maybe from the past and feeling like, oh, you know what? I, I didn't get to be a part of something because I was too young. I missed out. Or this things were better, legitimately better, you know, um, <laughs> when when the government, you know, funded, uh, had a, a, an actual uh, safety net for people or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And you can look at that and be like, man, I'm, you mourn it. You, but you, you are letting it go. You're not, you're not trying to pull that up from the past and make it a part of the present. You're going, this is gone and I am sad. It, it makes me feel like I wish it was here, but it's not. I have to now figure out what I'm going to do next, right? That And to me, that's fundamentally different from that sort of what I think of as reactionary nostalgia, which is sure. the Frankenstein monster stuff. So I'm, I'm just curious what you think about that. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I, so on our uh, on, on my podcast or the podcast I'm a part of, The Regrettable Century, one of the things that we have repeatedly returned to and tried to... to to sift through is this romanticism and the way in which you can, you know, have a very backward looking and retrograde and reactionary romanticism or nostalgia. Right. Um, or, or, you know, and, and is there, is there such a, a version of this that is, let's call it progressive, right. To use reactionary and progressive as the two poles here, well, forward looking and backward looking, but in both are informed by the past. And I think that uh, the first thing I think is like to tell people that nostalgia is bad and that ha- taking your cues from what has already happened is like, that's no good. I think that that's just like, in terms of strategy, it's not very workable. I don't think that speaks to people because we all experience either loss in a direct way because maybe you lived through an experience and there's a rupture from, you know, that, that takes you away from what once was. And that's the source of your discomfort. Or even just in the way you described, there's a notion of what once was that maybe we missed out on completely. Um, we all experience it. So I don't, think we sh- I don't think we should dismiss it. In fact, I think we're obligated to figure out a way to embrace it in, in, in a useful way. So what I think that I've, I've come around to is the idea that um, however things may have been in the past, it's mostly the way in which people in the past have looked toward the future that I think that we're really missing. So like, yes, it's true that it used to be the case that for certain sections of the population, it was a little bit easier to get the one job and to be able to raise a family on it and to retire on it. And that's, you know, you have like a trajectory in life, but that was also always based on the notion that you're, that whoever comes next in your lineage will have it better. Right. We're going to land on the moon and one day we'll live on the moon, right? The, the, the times that we're nostalgic for, you know, in a political sense, I think if we're really digging deep, it's less the, the creature comforts that people have had, right? But, but it's, it's more the aspirations that those things allowed us to have. It's the idea that there is a future and it's bright. And maybe you only feel that way because the present is relatively comfortable, but I think that that falls apart if you just know about other people's experiences. So like the 1960s were a, a time of some tranquility for some people. 
and a time of intense upheaval for other people. But in both cases, everyone's looking to the future. Um, whether you live in like the most the, the gated white suburban suburban community and your kids are off, off at college or your kids are at college sitting in, right? Or, uh, or you know, maybe you're a dishwasher and your kids are getting shot uh, or they're in Vietnam or whatever. But the, the revulsion against uh, what's wrong with the present manifests in an aspiration uh, to a brighter future. And it seems to be across the board that that's what people had. So a reactionary nostalgia would be one in which like, I want to go back to when we were comfortable. And I think a progressive nostalgia is I want to go to a place where we can look to the future. And my only representation of that happens to be from the past because the future hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a way of looking backward in order to look forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like I don't want to live in the Soviet Union, but I do want to live in the version of the world that the Soviet Union proclaimed to be on the horizon. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, I, I think when I, I look at this, right, like, um, you know, I, I, there, there's things that uh, I like the distinction that you made here between like, between like the, the, the uh, reactionary and the, and the progressive. What I'm thinking is, is a little bit different about this, though, too, is the, the melancholic view. Uh, let me, like, th- this is again, I'm going to kind of go psychoanalysis here for a second. Another thing that Freud wrote, which is really great if people haven't read it, I think you should, is a, an essay called Mourning and Melancholia. And in this essay, he talks about the differences between mourning and melancholia. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to kind of confabulate terms here, actually, and this might confuse people. Because I, I, when I'm saying melancholic um, uh, ways of, of kind of pining for the past, what, I, what I'm really talking about is, is what Freud called mourning. Uh, so in that, Freud said, you know, um, people, when, when you go through the course of a normal life, some, something, somebody that you care about, they, they die. And that means that they're no longer a part of your life. Like you can't have a conversation with them anymore. You can't mm-hmm. um, hang out with them. You can't give them a hug. You can't give them a gift. You know, you can't do these things because they're not there. But their memory, the memory of them, this is this is a ghost, right? It it's with you. And that ghost can either it, what what Freud noticed is some people mourn, and what that means is is they they it takes time. You kind of slowly start to withdraw the emotional investment you have in that that ghost uh when they mm-hmm. first when somebody first dies you still continue to usually if they were important to you you know have a really significant emotional investment in the memory um you you a ton of your your emotions go into that memory but over time if all goes well you know there's there's a, a decrease and you're able to sort of like reinvest your emotional energy into relationships with people who actually are alive and you, you're always going to invest some energy into that remembered person but hopefully not so not not the lion's share, I guess, of it. Then he saw that other people, what what he called melancholia, um, he thought that they continued to invest so much of their energy into this thing that will not actually be able to give you anything back, that won't be able to sustain you, that won't be able to uh, be actually be a part of your life in a material way. And he thought that that was not so great when when people did that, right? So I I think that. Um, what I think of is like uh, a melancholic nostalgia is like Freud's mourning. It's where we look at the at aspects of the past and and go like they, that was good. That was good. That was great. That's not here anymore. <laughs> you know, um, uh, to try, try to make this maybe less abstract here, Bernie Sanders not getting the nomination for from the Democratic Party. He's not going to. I I can't imagine a future in which he runs again. 
for president. No, I'm I'm pretty sure that that's that door is closed. Yeah, you know, um, I I feel uh, some some real regret about that. You know, totally. And absolutely, I, I'm I'm mourning that. But now, if I wanted to continue to kind of like invest in this idea of Bernie Sanders, you know, as president in the future, that this could I mean that's that's kind of like not a great plan ultimately. I think right, people might do that. I guess. Um, and, and that would that would be that that weird way of doing it. And so then maybe people kind of just want to try to invest into like some zombie Bernie Sanders, and then then animate that and kind of get that out into the world. I think that could be an example of, of even reactionary style because it, it could be left wing or right wing, right? But it's it's this idea of actually um, reanimating something from the past. But I think there's something perverse in that. I think there's something Absolutely. weird about it, right? And that's that's the, the kind of thing that makes it different. I mean, I feel that way about um, in political circles when there are people who insist upon being the the pe- people carrying forward like a particular tradition. Like we stand in the tradition of X political figure, and like we want to basically be the present day representatives of something from the past. It's like, well, you know, you didn't experience it, you weren't there for it. It's a thing that you've read about. And the idea of trying to basically reanimate something, uh, I well, let's say like I've come up against I've come up against it a lot, and you know, I don't mean it like you know, Karl Marx was a guy that lived a long time ago, so he doesn't have anything to say. I mean it more like in the sense that like the way in which people use terms like I'm a Trotskyist or I'm a Maoist, and it's like, well, what does it mean though? It means that you have a desire to be a part of something that has already come and gone. And and it doesn't you know and it doesn't really seem to be relatable to the majority of people, so it doesn't seem to have a a, a utility that you want it to have, which I think makes it not progressive. If it doesn't actually do the thing you want it to do, which is to animate people, to like galvanize them and mobilize them to defend and extend their interests collectively, then all it does is serve to make you feel good about what it is you have decided about your own life. And maybe that's personally fulfilling. And I don't want to say that that's not, it's not like an objectively a bad thing, but in a political sense, I do think it's retrograde. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, be, you know, in politics, you have to be propagandist enough to utilize what moves people and what moves people most. And uh, co- continually trying to reanimate a specter uh, a, a corpse just continually trying to reanimate a corpse from the past doesn't seem to serve that purpose. Mm-hmm. You see that um, in left-wing circles all the time. Um, and so, you know, I, I like to think that your Bernie Sanders example is a good one. I mourn the moment that we have lost yeah. that potential. It's gone. And uh, I felt it very deeply mm-hmm. whenever it, whenever it happened, it was however pessimistic I am, about everything all the time uh, felt a genuine sort of kinetic energy by being a part of that campaign and being, you know, in an environment in which people had hope and aspirations for the future. And they were consolidated in something so tangible as a presidential election. Yeah. Yeah. And And then it went away and it felt like, I mean, the, I mean, I've been, we've all been reeling from that blow for a while, uh, but it is over mm-hmm. and it isn't coming back mm-hmm. um, just like a death. Um, I think there's another way in which um, you can be melancholic about a loss because it's not a death. It's just a person who's stepped out of your life. 
and they're still existing in some other plane over there, you can even know exactly where it is, right? And then you just have to like daily contend with the fact that your life has changed because that person has stepped out and their life has changed because they've stepped out and you're on, you're no longer on parallel tracks. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to not, to, to, to not confuse the two, but it's very easy to confuse the two. Yeah. You were talking about that with, when you talked about that fork in your life, right? With the band, didn't go to be yeah. in a band, be in college. And, and I mean, the, the way I think about that sometimes, and this, this definitely, I think, uh, it, everybody has a version of this. Um, and I'm actually, I've, one of the things that I've noticed about this is that the version of life that people don't have in their head, I think it's always better than the version of life that they do have. It's, I, I don't know what I've talked to a lot of people who are like, you know what? I bet you that version of my life would have sucked more than what I have now. <laughs> I've yet to, to have somebody really do that very, very openly. Maybe they do it privately. But um, I think of it as like, if it, there's, there's moments of our lives where we're like at a train station. There's multiple trains. They're going down different tracks. And... Mm-hmm you get to decide what train are you going to get on. And, and for a little bit, like, yeah, yeah, it's like there's tons of options here. But then, you know, trains start leaving, and if you're not on them, you're not on them. You don't yep. get to go there. Uh, that's that, that thing when I, I was referring to earlier about just like the, uh, I guess, the insistence of time in my own life, right? Like how many good years do I have left? Trains are leaving. Uh, you know, and, and it's, uh, it's like, okay, I, I probably don't have the time or the money or both to, to do that thing anymore um it's gone missed that one so what trains can i get on and 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 sometimes you're right i've noticed that there are moments in my own life where i'm trying to get on one train i'm trying to compel other people sometimes to do the same like you should get on this train too you know sometimes probably for selfish reasons other times because i actually think it would be good for them and i guess other times both but um i've i've been in relationships with people who are super important to me and uh we get to a point where it's like okay we, you, you really want to go on a train that I don't want to go on or I want to go on a train that you don't want to go on. So that means that, yeah, we can call each other. We can send letters. You know, we'll, we can talk. Mm-hmm. But we're going to be on fundamentally different trajectories kind of from here on out, I think, right? And yeah. that's a hard thing. I mean, it's the hardest thing. Uh, although, you know, you could be pedantic about it and you could always say, like, listen hop off the train at the next stop, write it back, and then we'll get on it and go go together. But the fundamental point I think that you're making is one I agree with, right? This, uh, what's funny to me is that I actually, like, when I think back to the various uh, crossroads and the choices that I've made, I actually don't... Maybe it's because of how much I value my relationships with other people. However my life may have gone by doing something this way as opposed to that way, in my imagine they're not in my imagination they're not better mm. because they don't necessarily lead me to the to the connections I've made based on the trajectory that I have been on you know so like what if instead of going instead of moving from Austin to Denton to go to college I had stayed in Austin and I was in this band I would have met different people and would have met them in different circumstances it would have been on tour or something uh, and I would have worked at different jobs because, look, like probably I wouldn't ever have made so much money at being in a band. I wouldn't have to have other jobs as well. So I would have met people in different contexts. And I think I'm like pretty good at finding, you know, I'm I'm good at finding good people and connecting with good people, and I'm good at maintaining relationships. So I have friendships that go all the way back to my earliest memories, and like close friendships. Like I'm still very close to the first friend I made on the first day of the first grade. 
were deeply, deeply connected. So like probably it would have been fine, right? Whichever trajectory I would have gone on by taking by making this decision as opposed to that decision probably would have been fine, but I can't imagine it being better mm. because I can't imagine better people than the ones who I have already made, uh, important connections with. Um, so again, it's like, you know, when I say I'm nostalgic about every period of my past, that means I'm probably doing something right because I keep doing things that I then look back on and feel like, Oh man, that was a wonderful time. So as, um, as, as you say that, though, I mean, that, that, that calls, brings up another uh, thing I wanted to ask you about, um, and, and it has to do with this, uh, you, you've, you've talked about it, I think, in a, a couple of different ways so far, this um, looking to the past for inspiration or looking into the past to try to find, like, something that you might use as a model, you know, for how one mm-hmm. might live or, or whatever. And it reminds me so much of, of Mark Fisher, who's a kind of like a ghost in, in my life, right? Um, which is funny because he wrote a book called Ghosts of My Life. Yeah, um, well, it looms very large in mine. Actually, you can see uh, Ghosts of My Life on my shelf right there. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I, Mark Fisher was um, a big deal for me, right? Like, because uh, um, I, I think when I started to read Mark Fisher, there was this moment that I had where I was like, I think that somebody was able to do something that I say something that I wanted to say, but didn't know how to. And, uh, he did it very well. And it, it helped me then be able to say some things myself, think some things myself, actually. It, 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 it removed an impasse in my life. Uh, you know, so I feel like a, a great debt to this person who I never met, never knew, never corresponded with at all. Uh, and all that, but one of his his ideas, which I find really interesting, is just I, I think about it a lot. I don't know, but I think about it super productively. But I think about it a lot. Is this idea that um, you know there was a time where people thought about the future, like you were saying, where it's like whoever comes next, it's going to be a better tomorrow for them, right? When in the first episode of this podcast, I talked about horizons, and I'm like, you know, if I'm here, there's people who are younger than me, they're further up on the horizon, they can see further into the future than I can. And I don't know what kind of future they're seeing. And there's people who are older than me who can see further over the, the other horizon than I can because they've lived through times that I haven't lived through. And I think it's interesting to talk to them and see what they see if, I, if they don't mind having that conversation. But um, I think that Fisher's point was that people are looking, not looking to the future for inspiration. They look to the future and they imagine like the Terminator and the Road Warrior and these dystopic sort of like yeah. hellscapes. And they're, they're digging into the past to try to find like a model for the future that people in the fifties had because that model is actually more hopeful and inspiring than the models that we're creating now with all of the cool technology we got, you know? Um, I don't know. I just think that this is super interesting and it's that it has to do with that nostalgia thing. So yeah, I don't even know if there's totally. really a question here, but what do you think? Well, so I'm very conscious of the, the, my two souls. One is Mark Fisher and one is Jean-Paul Sartre, right? And they're opposite because one of them is all about the present and about deriving meaning and creating meaning in life in, in the circumstances that you exist in right now. And the other is, um, I mean, like, look, Fisher constantly lamented the loss of the future, so much so that he gave up on life, right? Like Mark, Mark Fisher killed himself um, and not in his twilight years because of, uh, you know, uh, he wasn't like diagnosed with an incurable illness and he decided to go out on his own terms. He just decided he couldn't handle it anymore. The day that the, the ever present present was staggering 
And I feel that deeply. And yet I want to feel the other way. I want to, so I'm constantly like, these two things are at odds with me. The dialectic inside my own mind is of these more or less opposite ways of approaching the past, the present, and the future. Mm. I haven't yet resolved, and maybe it won't ever resolve, that tension. But it is the attempt to resolve that tension, which is a a very uh, consciously defining feature of my life. Um, (laughs) Like, one time a friend asked me what I got out of Mark Fisher. It's like, it's so melancholic and you know the dude killed himself and whatever and like and then this same friend said you know i've also noticed that you know you a lot of your uh intellectual heroes or influences are people like vladimir mayakovsky or guy debord these are people who killed themselves so why are you so attracted to these people whose approach to life ultimately led them to end it prematurely and i was uncomfortable with the question because i didn't know how to answer it i still don't know how to answer it it's just, I guess, I think these are people who, they just, they dealt, they contended with the same world I'm contending with, and they had a hard time. And I'm having a hard time. I mean, I think we all have a hard time sometimes, right? So that's maybe the more, that's maybe my, my natural inclination, or natural is maybe not the right word, but that's my default inclination. The other one is more conscious, it's deliberate, it's an attempt to curb the excesses of, of, just lamenting the loss of the future. I still desire to be able to find in the present the ability to not just imagine a future, but to construct it. Mm -hmm. Um, To deliberately engineer a future. Not just for myself and my own personal life, because yes, there are certain personal choices that I hope to make in ways which are constructive. But also in a collective sense. Like I still... I don't know. I still need to believe that there is a, a brighter future for humanity than where we are. But, you know, brighter than climate catastrophe and a world where every six months, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people might die because of incurable illnesses, which or or just new constant new diseases that are created by the way that we we have constructed human society. Or the fact that no matter who you elect or whoever mounts a coup or whoever succeeds in a power contest whether it's armed or peaceful or whatever that nothing will change because they'll rule in the same way on behalf of the same people like if that's the future in a political sense right then i the the identification with the people who ended their own lives because they couldn't handle the loss of the future uh that that maybe um you know that i could see how that could be a dangerous way to think of things so it's maybe maybe it's just a personal like self defense mechanism to identify so strongly with people who find in the present um, the continual potential for a future. So again, I don't know where that ends up, but mm-hmm. that's my answer to your. Uh, I guess that was a question.
as you were saying that, I, I had a question kind of come to mind, and I don't know, I don't know how I would answer this question, and <laughs> to tell you the truth, but um, it's, uh, do you feel, do you believe, do you see that there has been um, what I'm going to call a pornification of um, being kind of like the 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 suffering intellectual, the suffering artist, mm-hmm. um, you know, the 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 person who's like. Uh, sad, you know, and performs their sadness in, in, in this way. And, uh, um, follow up question. Do you think that, that there has been an intertwining if there, you know, I don't know what you'll think about that, but, um, has that, that in any way intertwined with what I'm going to broadly call for lack of a better term, kind of like a woke politics. Hmm. So the first one's easier to answer, which is yes, I think absolutely. Um, I remember a much younger version of myself being fairly disgusted by uh, bright eyes because of how I, in my, at, at that time in my life, what I saw, I saw it as being like overly performative. Like I'm so sad and here are all the ways and everyone needs to know about it, which is why I couldn't, I couldn't identify with it. I don't feel that way anymore. Um, but although I do think that, that, uh, but, I mean, I, when I say I don't feel that way anymore, I say, like, I can identify with it. That doesn't mean it's not overly performative. Digital Ash for um, Digital Urn is one of my, my favorite albums, actually. I don't like any other Bright Eyes album, but that one, it's great. Yeah, there's, there's, there are some serious gems in there. And I think uh, it was like there was a period in my life where I went back and revisited a whole bunch of stuff that I thought that I couldn't identify with. And that even includes, uh, you know, what another person might call... Um, a guilty pleasure, which would be like a dashboard confessional album. Right. But I have found stuff in there that like, look, even if it is a overly perform, even if it is purely performative still speaks to an aspect of the human condition, which is so deeply uh, understood and felt you know, on my end that I get something out of it anyways, because we all have lived lives and there have been ups and downs and, uh, in the same way that like a Frank Sinatra song about like a about like a a pleasurable liaison or even falling in love might be based on exactly no actual experience in in the sense that like it's just these are platitudes or or a fictional version of 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 this romantic affair that you know he's so happy about it doesn't matter because you have had one and so you can put yourself in the mentality that the song is meant to impart to you even if it's actually not about anything that has actually happened from the songwriter's perspective. So I do think that there is an over, there is a, there's a great deal of public sadness and performative sadness and melancholy and regret and loss, whatever. And at the same time, I find it really easy to identify with anyways. Um, now, whether or not that's a good thing is, I don't know the answer to, um, when it comes to, I guess I want to ask you to, to, to ask the second question again. Sure. I want to make sure. sure that I want to make sure I'm approaching it in, in the way that you're intending. Yeah, I'll try. I mean, it was, I was thinking that question out in real time, so it was not in any way prepared. Right. So, um, one of the things that I'll, I'll, I'll notice sometimes, and, and I, well, you and I have talked about this, not when we're, we're recording, but just in, in conversations uh, at other times. Right. Um, there's a propensity I've noticed um, among many people who I really like being around quite a lot 
um, to, in my opinion, sort of like enjoy being um, ununderstanding, right? So uh, for, for a little bit of context here, right? Like um, we're living through a, a moment now at, at post-death of George Floyd where people are, are actually, I think, examining police brutality in, in a way that they were previously largely unwilling to do. And I think that this is very good. Um, I think it would have yeah. been better if we didn't have to do that. But, you know, given that we that we did have to do it, I'm glad that we're doing it. So this has led to a lot of discussions. And um, a while ago, I was I was in a particular discussion with people. And it was just like, so so what might we do about this? And um, what people were saying is like, well, let's have lots of conversations about white privilege, which, mm-hmm. yeah, let's do it. Let's have those conversations. But I, And then I, I tried to follow that comment up with a, a different comment. And I was like, but let's not stop there. Right have the conversations, but don't have the conversations be what you do, right? Have them be part of what you do, but not all of what you do. Uh, If that's maybe where you want to get started, cool, start there. Let's do that. But then, you know, let's try to do things that, that the the phrase that I used was that change the material conditions of people, you know, who are are in in a bad way. And I, I, I'm like, and here's how we might, might do that right like and and the thing is here i'm like you know you can probably accomplish more if we organize as a group and try to like pool our time energy and other resources and um attempt you know to to do something and the response that i got was no you're offering a solution for a problem that you don't understand because you are a um white man who has you know patriarchal privilege and and white privilege both of which are totally true. I have both of those privileges and, and I'm happy to engage in conversations uh, about those privileges um, it, 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 with people who want to, to do that. That's let's do it. Um, but like, I, I think what I was noticing is that people wanted to just kind of like in, in that instance, anyways, continually have this conversation about how they're bad for being privileged. But then they, I'm like, well, what do you do with that? Like if you feel guilty right. about your privilege, Okay. Maybe you should. Maybe I should. Maybe we all should. But um, if that's the the end of it, I feel guilty. Period. Full stop. Yeah. I you know. Yeah. I, I don't see the point. And but that I I noticed, and that's when I use the word pornification. I I, I mean, it's like there's there's something like uh, this is this sounds really weird. As I'm saying it, it's like it's pornographic, right? It, it's obscene to me mm-hmm. that people would do that, and that would be like the the extent of their their involvement in it. And um, it's weird because when, I'm, when, I, when they're saying these things, I'm, I'm looking at myself and I'm going like, am I wrong? And maybe I'm, I'm, am I too trigger happy here? And I want to like jump in and try to offer solutions to problems that I have no business offering solutions to. Is that what's actually happening here? And I've thought about it and I continue to think about it. And um, while I'm open to that possibility, I, I actually don't think that's what I'm doing. I think that I, what I want to do is I want to actually try to do something that would change the conditions right and totally. and even if i try and fail i don't think that my attempt is going to make the conditions worse i think it's very unlikely to do that specifically one of the things i was talking about i'm, I'm a psychotherapist i'm like you know i'll if there's people who need access to a, to somebody who's a mental health professional and they can't afford it how about they come to me and i don't charge them you know like that that's something i, I can do that you know ultimately and especially now with like video sessions being as prevalent as they are there's there's lots of ways to potentially make this work um and if people don't have computers, okay, then let's figure out like who do we do we get them computers or do I go to them? Do I do house calls? Like, you know, I'll I'll show up and do stuff. Will that make things worse? Uh, potentially, I guess it could, but I don't I don't I right now 
I think it's rather <laughs> unlikely. unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. And that could happen. And I think that that's more productive than it is to say, I have no right to attempt to better this problem because I, I lack the appropriate frame of reference. You know, I, I do think I lack the frame of reference that the people from the conditions that I'm trying to better have. I acknowledge this completely. Um, but I, I still think that that lack of my frame of reference is not uh, just a, a reason to, to talk, ultimately. It's totally. like, let's talk and do. Uh, sorry, that was a long rant, so I don't know if that no, 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 no. answers. Well, I mean, yeah. So the first thing I want to say about that is uh, we all live in the same world, even if our lives are somewhat separate and our experiences are separate. They're overlapping and they influence each other, which means by virtue of the fact that you exist, I do believe you are obligated to try to do things which make the world better. Because if you don't and it stays the way it is, that is, and especially if you come from a position of privilege, um, well, to put it very simply, it's like if you're not doing anything, you're actually doing something harmful. I actually think it's an obligation because by virtue of the fact that you recognize that you that every decision you make impacts other people and people who whose lives are overlapping with yours in a way which is negative because of a lack of privilege or because of an imbalance in opportunities and so on, that uh, whether you like it or not, your actions impact people's lives. So you have to, I think, as a, as a citizen of the world, you're obligated to try to do things that make it better for everyone, period. I just, I just think you have to. Um, so maybe in a moment of the of Black Rebellion, there are some people who are like, this is immediately relevant to my next day's experience, whether or not the police are able to get away with shooting my brother. And so then for another person, like a person like either of us, it's not immediately relevant to my personal next day experience, but it doesn't matter because if I'm not a participant, then that other person's situation doesn't likely change. And in fact, if I'm not a participant, then all of the other people, all the other white people who have the privilege or whatever, um, are just a little bit less, and maybe it's just one-to-one. One one. Maybe I only impact one other person. But they're just a little bit less likely to identify with the people whose lives are still impacted by theirs. So when you look out at a crowd of, of, of a cross-section of the population, it's very easy to identify with it because somewhere in there, somebody's like you. Mm-hmm. If you look out at a crowd that looks like people from a different neighborhood and may as well be a different planet than you, maybe you're altruistic enough to go, oh, I really hope things work out for them. But it's not the same thing as having a, a conscious stake in how it goes. Yeah. So it's a little bit it's a little bit long, a little bit tangential. But I actually think that no, it's wrong to not participate. You have to participate because you're alive. Mm-hmm. Um, now, because you have to participate, those conversations that you're talking about are absolutely necessary because there are more and less helpful ways to participate. Absolutely. So a conversation about how you're privileged or not and how you, you know, whether or not you do or don't benefit from or at least, you know, can exist in some sort of neutral space uh, relative to your own life. Um, you know, like the conversations that help inform you better about how your life meshes with other people. You have to have those. But it's it's the question has to me is like, in service of what is this conversation? Because if it doesn't end and tend toward participation and identification with other people, 
then it is just to feel bad. Mm-hmm. And then it is just pornographic. Or to feel to, righteous. To use, yeah, or to feel righteous. Absolutely. It is just the pure indulgence of an intense feeling mm-hmm. for just for its own sake. And I do agree with the, the, the dictum, right? That like up to this point, philosophers have only interpreted the world, but the point is to change it. So you, if you exist in the world, you are, you are obligated to participate. Otherwise, you're a spectator. And, and I'm, I'm just going to put a net negative on the idea of being a spectator and only witnessing the world and not trying to participate in the world. As you're saying that, it makes me think we, in some ways we've gone full circle. We started talking out about Christianity, right? And, and now we're talking about, our, I think, um, other aspects of our life. But I see a similarity in, in each of these, right? So um, I've noticed that there are some people who, um, and, and this is, I think maybe this is this has been my personal experience, right? Like when I, I went from, from a very um, religious but rather conservative sort of like family uh, environment to not that, uh, to a, uh, I, I, I was like, I want nothing to do with religion. I want nothing to do with it. I had a huge chip on my shoulder about religion for a very long time. Um, but then I, as I became more interested in, in the political projects that I'm interested in, I started to, um, like have conversations with, you know, family members and people from earlier in my life. And I, I found myself thinking that these like, um, uh, godless atheist socialist anarchists whatever you know seem to be much more interested in like the the project that christianity describes you know they just don't buy into a bunch of like the pageantry i, I suppose that that goes along with it and, and i this this struck me as so strange uh nowadays i'm finding there's a lot of i mean i, I teach in a school of social work that's, that's my my main job in the schools of social work, um, you get accredited. Like your programs can be accredited to so that your degree counts. And there's this thing called the Council of Social Work Education. They have things that they they say you should be teaching these things. One of the things they say that you should teach is social justice, economic justice, and environmental justice. And I talk to a lot of people who and they're like social justice, social justice, social justice, and they they ignore and kind of like disavow economic justice and environmental justice. And I keep on having these discussions about like, listen, I think social justice is extremely important. I just think that the way that we get to it is tied to economic and environmental justice. I, I think we have to talk about those and then not just because um, you can talk about social justice because it's so abstract. It's easy you know, to, to think that talking about an abstract concept is actually like doing something to realize the abstract concept. When we talk about more material concepts, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to say my conversation, my words are, are having a material impact, right? and kind of getting there. So I don't know if this tie makes sense outside of my brain, but I think there's a lot of people um, in, in religious communities and people who are in like social justice circles who want to go to gatherings and talk and think 
and that that's good. But then they think because they've talked, because they've thought about it, that they don't now their their responsibility is, has been fulfilled. They're no longer responsible to do more because they've done their part. And and I think what I'm trying to say a lot of times is that is not that that doing that part does not mean that you get out of doing the work mm-hmm. later on, right? And actually, sort of like living out the the principles uh, in in some meaningful way and doing something with them other than well, talking and thinking. Faith without works is uh is the same as works without faith right like you there's a reason i mean i think to to go full circle back to the the to allow ourselves to go full circle back to the the rooting our our, our framework or recognizing our framework is is religion i think there's, there's a reason for that because it's you know um whether or not you're raised religious you we all of us exist in a world in which this is uh this has an impact on us. And so we're all trying to, we're all trying to contend with two questions of faith and of works, whatever your faith is in and whatever your works are, the two things have to inform each other. Otherwise you're, you're either doing nothing or you're doing something blindly. Um, like there's a, there's a mentality that exists on the American left right now. Um, that's not completely dominant, but exists in some places, which is like an aversion to, study and and debate and it's just like no you just got to get out there and do the work and it's like well what is the work you just go do things but you don't like it don't you have like an imagined outcome and where does that come from like because to me it's like it comes from study and debate and 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 reflection and similarly like you know you could just sit around and talk about your privilege all day and feel good about it or bad about it or whatever but if you don't do anything with it then it's I don't know what it's supposed to do for anybody. It, it's funny as you, as you say that, or I mean, I'm going to invoke somebody who, who got canceled pretty hard. Um, Louis C.K. did this bit once uh, where he was talking. Oh, he about, did, yeah. Yeah. About being on the plane and he sees, I think it was like a veteran or something go, he's sitting in first class cause he's got money. He's Louis C.K. at that time. He's like big deal comedian. Sees some yeah. veteran go by and sit back in like the regular people section of the plane. And he says, you know, I thought to myself, I should give up my seat for that person. Nobody else in here. Nobody else is thinking about doing that. And that makes me better than all these people in first class. And then he doesn't actually do it, right? Right. <laughs> and and I, I think that that's a, a good metaphor for what I think might be happening in certain instances, right? Like, like let's not actually give up the seat, dude. <laughs> like, get up and say to the person who needs the thing, that you can give them like, Hey, would you like to switch seats? So give them the option. They might say no, but you know, you tried, you know, instead of going like, do I have the right to walk back to that person and ask them if they want to change seats with me? Because I don't understand where they came from. Like, actually that's a, that's a really good point of reference because when you put it in those terms, it sounds absurd to not, to, to, to check yourself and say, uh, is it an expression of my like first class privilege to go back to the guy in the, in coach and offer him something like, is that me lording my privilege over? That sounds ridiculous, right? But that is exactly the way that we think of, uh, well, that's one of the ways that this discourse about privilege can go. Like if, you're, if, if your role as a white person is to stay away from the protest because it doesn't, you know, uh, it, 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 it doesn't impact your life in the same way, that's exactly the same as saying, I don't have a right as a first class passenger to offer my seat to a coach passenger. 
Yeah, for whatever reason. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, you know, it, the person's pregnant. <laughs> they, I don't know, they, they have crutches. I, you pick your reason, right? Um, you, that you want to go like, hey, I'm in a position to potentially make this person's life better. I, I can do it, you know, as opposed to going like, no, I don't, I don't have the right <laughs> to, to right. do this sort of a thing. It does. It sounds silly, right? But you're, it you're, does. It sounds very silly. And, and yet well, it imagine, seems to happen <laughs> in all these other contexts. I like to try to imagine the Freedom Rides or the, the Woolworths uh, lunch counter sit-ins in an era in which it's not your right as a white person to be a part of it. It's like, well, these, those buses would have been just firebombed, right? Yeah. Like, there's a way in which, if, let's accept the discourse about privilege. Now, what can we do with it? What can we do with the recognition of privilege? I can make sure that we only get our skulls cracked instead of everyone dying by virtue of being a part of the thing. It yeah. changes the dynamic a little bit. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I suppose that's at least a beginning point. I certainly don't feel like I have many or even fully formed answers at all. But I think that that at least helps us get in a direction. And I do, I do believe like to, to try to, to, draw, to try to draw a through line through this whole conversation, I do believe you have to be going. Mm-hmm. You can't just you can't just be right. Mm-hmm. You can't live at the train station. You have to get on the train and go somewhere. And there are certain ways of knowing things and ways of experiencing and ways of internalizing that are conscious that are that do amount to trying to live at the train station. Mm-hmm. And and I think the whole point of going to the train station is to try to leave it and go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah. that involves making a choice ultimately. And I, I mean. I think I can say that I understand that that's not easy to do. And, and of course there's anxiety around it. And what if you make the wrong choice and you might make the wrong choice? It, it's, but is that, I, I guess it's, I, there's a process by which you can say like, even if I make the wrong choice, is it like, is this wrong choice going to, to really screw up somebody else's life in some pretty bad way? Or is it, it you know, and, and if the answer to that is no, okay, then is, is it worth it to risk possibly making the wrong choice or not the best choice or something? And I, I think that a lot of times it probably is. Right. I mean, unless you're going to mount a coup and become like absolute dictator over the country. Well, that would very be one of those of your, things where you, you are going to potentially screw up other people's lives. Right. In, in, in those circumstances, your every decision has an impact that will have an impact that will, uh, you know, lift some people up to the highest heights and cast others down to the lowest lows. But absent an environment which you have absolute power, mm-hmm. most likely trying to go somewhere positive and trying to do things that are good, you're you're going to end up doing more good than bad. I think yeah. we have we have a very limited impact on on what we can't uh, mm, Well, I don't want to say we have a very limited impact on what we can't see. I think we have an impact on what we can't see, but it's it's not an outsized impact. It's sure. it's one that we can, we can at least fully imagine the consequences of our actions as individual actors in in a society because we don't have absolute power. Nobody has to listen to us. Yeah, totally. <laughs> this is interesting, man. We've been talking for like 90 minutes. And I, I think I said I had four questions. We probably, we kind of talked about the first two ghost inspectors. Those are my, but um, I'm going to try to cram one of my, my last ones in here. Let's do a lightning round of the last two. All right, let's do it. 
Um, so when you look over the, you're, you're slightly younger than me. So, I mean, um, maybe a better way to ask this question, I, I was going to ask it is when you look over the horizon, like kind of what do you see? But I mean, and you can answer that if you want to, but what might be a potentially more interesting question? Cause I do this a lot, right? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm around people who are in their early twenties on a regular basis because I, I teach at a university and I'm constantly like imagining to myself, like when they look over the horizon, what do they see? And then I try to mm. I try to check that right. Like I ask them, like, so when you imagine the future, what does it look like? You know, when where do you think you're going to be in ten years? Where do you think we're going to be in ten years? Like, et cetera. So that's the the other way I was going to ask the question is when you you know imagine somebody who is uh, at that spot in their life where they're in their like early to mid twenties. They're they've got probably a lot 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 more tomorrows than they do yesterdays. They, there's a lot of trains that haven't left the station yet. You know, they're looking over the horizon. What do you think they see? Hmm. So it's a hard question to answer, but I think it's a useful one, right? Because uh, two months ago, even if you had asked me that question, I would say that I really feel for younger people because I feel like there's very little that is clear on the horizon. It's like the, um, the, you know that you're climbing a hill and at some point there's a valley, right? But you haven't gotten there. But even the top, even the crest of this, of this hill is obscured by fog. And that's really what it does appear. That's how it has appeared to me. That's how it does appear to me. And I, I assume based on, um, the, the visible culture of younger people that, there's a lot of uh, hopelessness and doom and gloom that's just kind of like exists in the memes and the whatever things that people uh, pour their consciousness into in order to have it expressed to the world. But then I also think like right now we're living in a moment of intense hopefulness Mm. that does seem to buck that trend. Um, So I'm not sure at this point. And I think, I think that right now, probably um, at least the younger people that, well, I can, I can even say with certainty that the younger people in my life, people who are younger than me, 10 years, 12 years younger than me, are they in general do seem to feel like, hey, we're moving again. We might be headed somewhere good. Um, whereas even a couple months before, um, they might not have felt that way. I personally uh, am very skeptical. <laughs> I don't want to be, but it's, but it's there. And, and I think that, I think that like 25 year old me would be really disappointed in 35 year old me because of how, um, even at this, at this stage, the, the, the horizon seems more obscured than it did when I was 25. Uh, we used to have like a kind of a, a, a joke in my circle that like, if somebody would ask you, where do you see yourself in 10 years? The answer was always dead in jail or in power, which is to say that there is a future and we're either going to get there or we're going to die trying. Um, and I don't know how I feel about that anymore, but I, I, where do I see myself in 10 years? I don't know, but it could be in exactly the same place I am now. Uh, my sincere hope during those moments when I allow myself to hope is that the hopefulness of people younger than me actually will create that future. And uh, maybe at this point, I'm better positioned to follow than the lead uh, for precisely that reason, because all I see is fog. And maybe um, maybe that means I shouldn't be 
trying to tell people where to go right now. That's so I at least recognize that limitation on my part means taking a step back and not trying to pretend like there's a light switch in this dark building. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a good reference to, to our other Lost Horizons podcast, which we could say something about, but I'll save that for later. Um, you know, as, as you were saying that, one of the things that, that um, occurs to me is that it's weird. Like, I don't even, I could, I, there was not a moment when this happened to me. This is definitely like a slight kind of like gradual, probably realization that happened over a couple of years. Um, uh, where I, I felt like I went from being the, uh, the group that, uh, of young people who, uh, could see further over the horizon. Uh, and then I recognized that like I had been passed by people even younger than me and I had, I had shifted. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, it, it, I'm in this position now. Uh, it's, it seems like this is kind of where, where my life is, is, is that, um, I don't know if there's a, a good word for this, right? Um, I think that a lot of times, and maybe again, this is, this is due to the, the positions that I hold in society, but I, I find that a lot of times younger people do come to me and they're saying like, can you please provide us with an answer for something, a question that we have? Yeah. And, um, you know, sometimes, yes, I can. Um, uh, and I do. And other times, yes, I can, but I'm going to hold off on that because I think it's a good question that you're asking, right? And I think if I, if I give you an answer, then that might um, actually rob them of an opportunity of kind of creating a different, potentially better answer than the one that I provide um, for them. But I, I, what I'll try to do is not just be like, nope, I'm not answering your question, but, but it's, uh, it's kind of like going like, well, what, what do you think? And then based off of, they, they tell me what they think, I ask more questions, right? Like I, I guess like it's gone from this idea of being the person who's kind of like uh, the generation, I guess, that's leading the charge into the future to being the generation that's, that's um, asking some good questions kind of from the rear, <laughs> as opposed to trying to direct just ask right. the, the good questions. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know if I'm like kind of like abdicating responsibility. I worry sometimes that I am, but I do want to ask those good questions and kind of help people out uh, as they do that. So I don't know. It's weird. I, I know I, I talk to, to people now, younger people, and um, they seem to be kind of imagining a future that does seem different to me. Right. It's a, uh, it, and, and, but the things that they're imagining are not what I always expect. Like, uh, I think they're imagining a future where people, um, for, for many, many years now, it seems as though people have been imagining a more technologically sophisticated future. And I get the impression that people are starting to imagine a, a divestment from technology and a reinvestment into community. And I really hope that that's not just the small group of people that I'm talking to, that that's maybe a, a more global phenomenon. Cause that would be great. I mean, that would be my ideal version of looking to the future, even. Like, you know, we've done a couple of uh, episodes, discussions about this idea of a fully automated luxury communism as the future. And been, have been, you know, not not just on a surface level, we try to engage with it, but ultimately, like, fairly dismissive of its, of its uh, propositions. Um, but then the question has always been on the other end is like, well, how do you, what, you know, if, if we're not techno futurists of some kind, what else can we really imagine? Mm -hmm. And and isn't it just analog time or is there a conscious divestment from technology and a reinvestment in the, the social bonds of community that like 
um, they, I mean, they, they serve, they serve us in such different ways. Like to, to take an example, it's, uh, you know, like a, a t- we can teleconference to use an old version of the, of t- we're zooming, right? It's great. But like the pandemic, I think has put a lot of people in a position of, somewhat recoiling in even in horror at the idea that this is going to be the way that we all interact from now on. Yeah. And like, that's a possibility. And that version of the future is, is horrifying. Like when you, when you sit in a zoom call for work and then you do another zoom call with your friends and are, Oh, let's all have a drink. And so you all pour yourselves a drink and you like have this virtual experience. And then in between, or maybe late at night when you're done with all of your zoom calls for the day and, you get on Tinder and you swipe through the app and, and you know, you basically virtually date and it's all this terribly alienating uh, series of experiences, which are technically luxuries mm. because they allow a thing that might be denied to you in a fully analog version of the world. You and I would not even have met each other without technology. Word. And, uh, and I would, I would call it a net positive that we have met each other. Right. Mm-hmm. And yet the other side of it is a, a potentially dystopic future where everything is mediated several several layers through by technology so i certainly hope that the the conscious desire to to step away to some degree from from the constant revolutionizing of 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 life in the direction of of technology i i certainly hope that that's realizable and practicable because the version of the world i want to live in is is more like an investment in in the immediate community than it is an investment in the expansion of our connectivity to the detriment of community. For sure, for sure. It's interesting you said you said that because I, I have a, a reminder that just came up on my computer that says in five minutes I'm supposed to be at a meeting that I'm doing through Zoom. <laughs> um, right. So it is a luxury that you can talk for five minutes, or you could you could do whatever you want for the next five minutes, and you don't have to hop in the car and drive 30 minutes and be 25 minutes late to something, right? That's a luxury. Sure, sure. Yeah. I, I suppose. But it does also squeeze more out of you minute by minute. Yep. Yep. I'm going to just... Like I could, I could yeah. <laughs> you know, it's weird. Like uh, I have this vision and uh, I can remember being a kid. I mean, I don't know. I'll let you say whatever you want to say about this. I'll, I'll say this quick and let you have the last word. Um, I remember being a kid and people um, smoking in my house. My parents both smoked. It was not not a big deal to smoke in your house. People smoked in their houses. I remember being a teenager and going to Denny's and Denny's had, the Denny's that I went to anyways had two smoking sections. All right, at night um, because there was that many smokers going to Denny's and there was a very small non-smoking section. Which you know to imagine that today it seems kind of like that would be absolutely nuts. Um, now smokers have been when i was in college there was like kids would leave class and they couldn't smoke in the building but they would go just right outside the door because we're in in the chicagoland cold and like kind of huddle together and smoke and i hung out with the smokers even though i didn't smoke because the smokers were more interesting than the non-smokers typically um they can't do that now they have to like you know walk to not the campus to smoke um smoking was this totally normative social activity that became totally non-normative right yeah. Um, I'm wondering, and I'm, I, people can't see because this is a podcast, I'm holding up my, my iPhone. I'm wondering if there'll be a point at which, um, like, looking at your phone in the way that people do now um, becomes like smoking 
did where it becomes this kind of like social faux pas that you're not supposed to do at all. So anyways, that's my, my optimistic <laughs> note. I'll toss it over for you to have the last word. Look, one can hope. And actually there was a period um, when I was living in Austin, one of the three times I've lived there. Cause like I was saying, I bounce around as a, as a matter of habit. Uh, there was a period whenever um, we get together with a certain group of friends and let's say we go to a diner um, some some version of the Denny's, right? Like the mm-hmm. the very first thing everybody would do when they sit down is they take out their phones and then set them in a stack together. And if it, and if it wasn't happening, it, you know, by force of habit, somebody would say, "All right, stack them," and everybody would take out their phones and stack them. Mm. So you know, you might feel a vibration on the table, but you don't know whose fucking phone went just went off because it doesn't matter because you're here with these people. Um, and yes, sometimes you have to be available. But I, uh, I have tried to, to, to consciously incorporate that into my own personal life. Like I'm, if I'm taking a walk with somebody and my phone goes off in my pocket, I'm not necessarily going to reach for it because I'm talking to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I would embrace uh, a set of rules that said you can't look at your phone right now. Like mm-hmm. in, this, in this moment, you can't look at your phone. I still remember a time when you would have to go home and check the answering machine to find out if anybody calls you. And uh, it is nice to be able to like multitask, I guess, and to be able to reach out to somebody from the other side of the world right now if I feel like it. And on the other hand, I'm talking to you right now. Mm-hmm. So I shouldn't even, I shouldn't entertain that desire. Not right now. Maybe right after this. Uh, so I don't exactly know how it would play out, right? But yeah, something like making the, the, the non-normative um uh, over my words here what am i trying to say something like the way that you just described the the shift with smoking to something that is really like it, it actually now takes an effort to go out and smoke right mm-hmm. it's, it's there's something about that that's probably positive when it comes to the to the phone as well yeah. but you know maybe we're just old guys <laughs> yeah maybe we don't know what we're talking about uh <laughs> all right well this has been fun jason thanks for uh taking the time to do this i really appreciate it yeah this is great the song you need to hear When you've done it, tell me how Where I walked the day Amelia died is where you'll find me now I dreamt of gutting billionaires When I woke, blood was gone For a flash I'd seen the whole bipedal in the white beyond So write the song you need to hear Write it on the palm of your hand When the world is drowned in flames Write something you can understand Go small, go small, go small Go small When you try to see it all, you'll see The earth is radiantly suicidal Well, the earth is radiantly suicidal So if there's any play in favor of survival It's go small Build the room I need to live in Gonna 
Plant a garden in my head Paint the rites of Lupercalia In the spot above my bed Write the song you need to hear Even if it amputates the sky Even if it's gone a second later It'll be okay Cause I go small, go small It's go small.